On today's Ear Snack, we will be discussing the inspiration behind the Coen Brothers' 1996 Academy Award-winning film, Fargo. It's the Woodchipper Murder, today on For the Love of Murder. Hey listeners, this may come as a surprise, but this podcast is about murder. Due to the graphic nature of our stories, listener discretion is advised. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to For the Love of Murder. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. My name is Andy. Sitting across from me as always is my glamorous fiance, Ange. Hola. And welcome to For the Love of Murder, where murder is a given. And humor is a must. So what's new, babe? What do we need Still to cover? COVID-19 lockdown here. Oh, we do have a big thank you. Yes, we do. Uh, special thanks to Casey and Sarah Godby today because uh, they're some of our friends. Uh, I work with Casey. He's a great guy. And they decided to pick us up some teepee. Which is a hot commodity these days. It is a very... I mean, we haven't been able to find toilet paper in two like weeks. two weeks. It's been two... Yeah. yeah. We've been using... Now, listen, people, calm down. We've been using, you know, napkins and toilet... <laughs> and, and oh, not, not toilet, toilet tissue, yeah. but... Paper towels. Paper towels. Yeah, napkins and paper towels. So, things were a bit raw. And the three seashells. Yes, and <laughs> trying to, you know keep everything intact while all you assholes bought up all the toilet tissue so uh, definitely again a very special thank you to casey and sarah because they were cool enough they were at meyer i guess right when the truck was hitting with all the tp and they were cool enough to think of us and then actually deliver it on top of that yeah it was like it was like tp delivery you know yes so thank you guys very much for that also New on this episode, we have some new Patreon supporters. We do. That we need to send a big thank you out to because uh, without their support, the show would not be possible. Absolutely. So uh, first off, thank you to Lance Gray. Madam, you are always loved. Yes, you are. Thank you. He's a he's a good friend of ours. We haven't really talked much about it because I was trying not to do the shameless plug thing, but Ange and I run an immersive horror theater experience in, in Indy, and uh, Lance was uh, one of our cast members this past Halloween season for um, a hell house. Yes. And prospect. he, he is fantastic. And, uh, we definitely appreciate you being the first yeah. Patreon supporter. Absolutely. To sign up. Uh, also signing up to help us out is Cameron Bennett. Uh, he's another buddy. He's a, he's another haunt owner in the, uh, indie area. He runs a fabulous haunt called haunted Angelus house on the he east does. side. It, it, listen, people, I went through it with lights on and no actors and I still jumped <laughs> Like a complete bitch. Yeah, you were scared shitless. I was. It, and they and didn't it was even have good. Anybody. No. Yeah, it, they, they run a very good haunt over there. So thank you, Cameron, very much. Yeah, for we appreciate up. it. Uh, also signing up, my buddy Justin Kaufman. Uh, this is. We used to work together. We were partners years ago. He's since moved out of state uh, because of a job change. And uh, dude, you're awesome, man. Thanks. We for, appreciate it, Justin. Yeah, thank you very much for your help. Um, if any of you out there would like to help support the show, you can find more info. Um, by checking out our website, loveofmurder.com, and there you'll see a Patreon link. Um, so you can check that out. There's different membership levels and there's different benefits associated with that, like early access to episodes, you're getting your name set on the show, all that kind of stuff. So Andy is, if anything, amazing at creating, and the Patreon page um, is 
is very cool and not something I don't think I've ever seen on any podcast. Um, he really took the time to kind of make it more personal and feel, you know, make you feel like you're more a part of this, um, which you are, because if without listeners, we wouldn't be able to do this. So uh, go take a look at it, guys. Oh, thanks, babe. You're welcome. Yeah, there's some good. I decided to name our levels. Uh, it's, they're all after serial killers. So there's Gacy's Groupies and Dahmer's Daisies and Ted Bundy's Babes, I think, is what I have it as. So yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's just, good. just give it a check out and, you know, consider it. We would yeah, appreciate it. We would appreciate it. Hey, even a dollar does something. Absolutely. So a little disclaimer. Got to do our disclaimer we like we do every show. So this is a true crime podcast. Uh, we are going to be talking about a lot of sick shit. We're obviously going to be talking about murder and giving you some graphic details on that stuff. Uh, Which but, you know, is what you're here for. Yeah, exactly. But in the meantime, also, Ange and I kind of have a sense of humor. At least we like to think we do. So we're going to be making fun of some of this shit. Uh, we'll do our best not to make fun of victims or victims' families, but like we always say, it takes a sick, crazy ass to pull some of this stuff off, so we're going to fucking make fun of them because they deserve it, I think. Yeah, they really do. Actually, I think I'm hilarious, and I realize <laughs> I am not as funny. I mean, I laugh at myself, and that's sad, you know? Hey, you can't... I'm, I, I mean, I do. It's yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> well, I laugh at you, too. You do well, say a lot of funny shit. I don't I do. think you catch it until you listen back once yeah, the episode is Yeah, and I'm out. like, oh, geez, I didn't even know I said that. <laughs> well, with that being said, uh, would you like to know where we're traveling to today? I would, right. actually. We are, we're going to stay in the U.S. this time. Uh, we're going to uh -oh. travel to Newtown, Connecticut. So Ooh. to give you some points of reference here, Newtown is a town in Fairfield County, Connecticut, which is the southwestern tip of the state. Uh, if you've ever seen a map of Connecticut, it's that little tip that kind of looks like Connecticut's penis that shoots off oh, the, well. the bottom left corner of the state there. Sorry, uh, Connecticut. That's that's unfortunate. It was the best way to describe it. Uh, so Newtown is part of the greater Danbury metropolitan area, as well as the New York metropolitan area, because it's only about an hour and 40 minutes away from New York City. Just close enough to get the small. Right, right. Uh, as of the 2010 census, its population was 27,560. And the western half of Newtown is one of the most affluent areas in Connecticut. That means it's where the rich folk live. Oh, I wouldn't know that. Sorry, guys. You might also recognize uh, this town that we're talking about, Newtown, because it is also, unfortunately, where the Sandy Hook Elementary was, School shooting happened. I was actually just going to ask that. Yes. That's why I was looking at you strange. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was putting the pieces together on that. She was giving me this odd glare, like, are you about to mention something else? Yeah, I yeah. kind of, yeah. Well, so basically what we're saying is you bitches are on lockdown like New York City. you got 14 days of quarantine. <laughs> Uh, the racial makeup of this town uh, in 2010, anyway, was 95.14% white. Uh, yeah, that sounds about right. 2.36% Hispanic, 1.75% black, and 0.14% uh, Native American, 1.4% Asian. So predominantly white area there in Connecticut. Okay. Uh, and if this tells you anything, the median income for a family in the town as of 2007 was $119,000. Okay. Go fuck so. yourself. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> We're just a little jealous. Said that out loud. Sorry. You guys, you guys enjoy that money. So we always like to give credit where credit is due. Um, you know, we extensively research these cases before we bring them to you. In this case, I found a fabulous article on crimelibrary.com by a guy uh, by the name of Mark Gatto. Uh, it's entitled The Woodchipper Murder Case. 
he really, uh, one, I, I would suggest if you're into this story after listening to this podcast, go to crimelibrary.com and check out um, Mark Gatto's article here because he has a wonderful way of storytelling this. He puts a little bit of flair in there too. It's kind of like reading a script from a movie as if they were going to make this into a movie other than Fargo. Um, so definitely check it out. I pulled a lot of my info from this, so I wanted to give props out to him, but uh, fabulous job on an article. So check it out. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> All right, so let's set the scene. Oh, great. Here we go. November 18th, 1986. Uh, I was three. Yes. I was so three. Really so really not that far. I mean, we're not talking about something that's way off in the past. Something mm-hmm. was going on when we were kids. Yeah, like I was, like 33 years ago. So uh, an unusually severe winter storm hits Connecticut. Uh, apparently this is a hot fucking mess of a storm. The power's out, trees are down, uh, and the storm just kind of rages on for several days. So one of the town's utility men by the name of Joseph Hine, he arrives at the municipal garage at 11.30 p.m. on November 20th. At 12.30 a.m., he gets into a snowplow and he begins plowing the streets as he does as part of his job. He plows along River Road until he comes to the intersection of River Road and South Flat Hill Road. Now, it is there, as soon as he passed through that intersection, Hines sees a truck parked off the side of the road. And he later describes this to be a U-Haul truck. So your standard, you know, big box, orange and white U-Haul truck. Hines says that the truck has a large wood chipper attached to the back of it, oh, like being Jesus. towed by Here it. There we go. The chipper seemed old and well used, and as he passed the U-Haul. Oh, wait, old and well used. How how does one know if a wood chipper is old and and well used? Well, I mean, I guess if it's you know, it's got the shiny, fresh coat of paint on it, as opposed to being all rusted out and shit. I don't know. I mean, but do you like do you can you tell from that far of a distance? Oh, look at that wood chipper. It's well used. Fuck, I don't. I just know this is how he describes this later on to police. What a strange story. <laughs> so anyway, go ahead. Sorry. As as he passes this U-Haul, he sees a man standing near the driver's side door who suddenly began to walk to the rear of the truck when he sees the snowplow coming up. And this man motioned for him to go ahead and pass, which he ends up doing, and then he just kind of continues on down his plow plow route there on Ooh, River you've Road. Been caught, bitch. <laughs> so two hours later, we're now at 5.30 a.m., Hine plowed River Road from the opposite direction. So he's gone down and plowed. Now he's on his way back. And as he passes uh, the same area, he sees the same U-Haul again, but this time the back of the box of the U-Haul is open and he can see inside and he can see a stack of wood chips inside the truck. Um, and he can also see wood chips kind of strewn about on the shoulder of the road. And uh, he just kind of continues by and, and plows snow and he's later- He's probably going, what the fuck is, we are in the midst of snowmageddon and there is somebody out here wood chipping. First of all, way to go, dipshit. That is, oh, Lord, it's going to get worse. I'm telling you, you're psychic, because the next thing I was going to say is Hein is later basically quotes himself as saying to himself as he passes this a second time, that's strange that a person would be out so early in the morning in the middle of this winter fucking storm chipping wood. So he thinks this is a bit odd, but, I mean, what do you do in that moment? Like, okay, cool, somebody's chipping wood on the side of the road. So that's on November 20th. You go... That's in the brain. Right. Date and time has been marked. On December 1st, 1986, so we're talking about 10 days later, the Newtown Police Department in Central Connecticut receives a phone call from a man by the name of Keith Mayo. And Keith here is a local private investigator. So he tells police that his client, Hell Crafts, H-E-L-L-E 
Crafts. He uh, he reports to the police that this client of his, this Hellcrafts, recently disappeared, and he fears that she may have been murdered by her husband, husband Richard Crafts. Um, this guy is insistent to the police that they investigate this crime immediately. Um, and basically what he tells them is he knows for sure that Hell left her home on November 19th to drive to uh, her husband's sister's house in nearby Westport. Uh, but Hell never shows up at the sister's house um, and basically has not been heard from since. Her car ends up later being found in an employee parking lot of Pan Am Airlines at Kennedy Airport. Um, which, by the way... Why does everybody take the car to the airport? <laughs> well, they... the One of the most guarded, full of... can't. What the fuck? Stop taking them to the airport, people. Well, Hell and her husband, Richard, both work for the airlines. So I think this was an attempt to make it look like she had either gone somewhere or was working. Still going to get caught. True. Like, probably the most does cameras. she look? Does she look like a 6'5", burly man getting out? No. What are we doing? Stop doing that. So the plot thickens here because Newtown police detectives, they know Richard Crafts very well. Why? Because he is a reserve police officer oh, for the God, town. Oh, God, you fucking idiot. So he's been a member of the department since 1982. So four years now, he's been a police officer with uh, Newtown. Um, they said he had a reputation as um, basically a very serious patrolman. Um, he had limited responsibilities, but he took those very seriously. Um, when investigators go on to interview Richard on December 2nd, he confirms the story and said that on the night before Hell disappeared that she was happy and showed no signs of being dif uh, different or upset. He and his wife slept at home together, and uh, when they awoke in the morning, Richard said that the plan was for Hell to go to his sister's house in Westport because they had no power. I guess the power's out due to the storm. Um, and he said that he hadn't heard from his wife since November 19th. So he kind of confirms... You know, but didn't call and hey, yeah, you hey, is think, hell there? Oh no, oh okay, she's probably okay. Yeah, we're on day eleven or twelve now, so yeah, <sighs> what he, a dipshit. Why isn't he the one calling to report this? So, but unfortunately, in the beginning, initially, the police they don't seem that concerned, mostly because really the overwhelming majority of missing person cases, you know, usually especially with adults, they turn up or it's of their own. You know, they just yeah. decide I'm bouncing and they disappear. So cops aren't, and, and again, he's like a member of the police force. A lot of them know this guy. So they're like, well, what the, you know, she probably just left him, you know, whatever. Back in those days, wasn't it like the 24 to 48 hours they had to be missing before you could even. Yeah, I think they, I think a lot of places still follow that rule oh. with adults, 18 plus, unless there's some other evidence of like foul play or something. It's like, well, they're over 18, you know, who, they do yeah. what they want. So um, investigators end up interviewing friends of the Kraft family. This included neighbors, Hell's co-workers, um, and virtually all of them agreed on one aspect of her disappearance. Hell was a very devoted mo mother to their children. Um, and they all say she never would have just voluntarily would have left and like left her children alone. Uh, they also told police that Richard Crafts had a series of extramarital affairs. So um, apparently Hell had just discovered that Richard had one girlfriend in New Jersey I guess he'd been seeing this chick for years. Um, and right before Hell disappeared, she had told several people that she wanted a divorce and she was going to try and get it as soon as possible. Damn, he went to Jersey, huh? So the, the plot is, is thickening here because we're finding reasons why Richard might not want Hell around anymore. So his kids are, you know, they're just like living their best lives and nobody's like, oh, oh, where's mom? Yeah, you would think. You would think. Oh, she ran off with the mailman. 
Well, police also learn in the coming days that Richard has offered several different versions of what happened to his wife. So he tells one neighbor that Hal had made a trip to Germany and that she'd be returning soon. He tells others that he didn't know Nine. where she went. <laughs> oh, Jesus. It scared the fuck out of me. Nine. He tells others he doesn't know where she went. Um, on November 21st, just two days after her disappearance, he tells Don Thomas, who Don Thomas is like the family nanny and housekeeper. They call him an au pair. I've never heard of that term before. But um, basically, he tells her that Hell had to fly to Denmark because her mother was ill. So she was going to see her mother in Denmark. On November 29th, he tells another friend of Hell's, Lena Johnson, um, that basically the same story that she's gone to see her mother in Denmark. So Lena is like something's fishy somehow. Yeah. Because you can't get your fucking story straight. You asshole. You don't tell 27 people, 27 different things. So somehow Lena gets hell's mother's phone number in Denmark and calls her, finds out mom's not in the hospital. She's doing really well. And she didn't expect to see hell until the following April, which I guess was the typical time that she would be visiting. So that story's bullshit. So upon finding this out, this Lena Johansson lady, she goes to the police. Um, she tells the police also at that time of a disturbing statement that Hell had made to her earlier in that November, so just a month before this, that, quote, if anything happens to me, don't assume it was an accident. Oh, shit. Yes. So, so people, it wasn't a fucking accident. Yeah, okay, she didn't go to Denmark. She's not in Spain. She didn't fly to Japan. No, she's, she's dead. Yes, most likely. And I think that's where we're headed, honestly. Uh, so let's get a little background before we get any further. Let's uh, reverse it a little bit, get a little background on Hell and Richard and how they met. Uh, so Hell uh, works as a flight attendant for Pan Am Airways. I don't, that's like old, here in Pan Am is so old. Because then they go out of business in like the late 80s or something like that. It reminds me of the mo that movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio when he's yes. yeah, so good. Yes. Uh, so Hell's working for Pan Am. Crafts works as um, a pilot for Eastern Airways, which I'd never heard of Eastern Airways, but he apparently he's a pilot with them. So on May 24th, 1969, while Hell's waiting for a flight, she meets Richard in passing, basically. Um, they maintained an on-again, off-again relationship for the next couple years. Uh, they frequently fought, sometimes in public, but somehow they always wound up back together. Hell's friends, though, were suspicious of Richard from the beginning because he showed, um, well, they showed open hostility towards this guy. Most of the friends couldn't understand why Hell was attracted to him. Um, and if you look up some of the pictures of Richard Crafts, he's not the most attractive guy in the world. He's a little bit older than Hell. Hell's very attractive. So they're, they're trying to figure out, like, what she what is she wanting to do with this guy? Well, in 1975, Hell became pregnant with Crafts first child and uh in november of that year they get married in new hampshire so they end up buying this so, funny funny thing here i just had to i had to google this name because i'm just curious and then when you said denmark i thought okay so this must be you know so the name is both a feminine given name and a surname the given name is a danish variant of the feminine given name helga Okay, so it's like a shorter version of saying yes. Helga because she is from Denmark. So yes, this makes sense. Okay, um, so the two of them get married, and they decide to move into this one-level ranch home in the city of Newtown, Connecticut. Um, they have their first child, um, and basically they're making some damn good money because he's an airline pilot. 
Um, she is um, a flight attendant basically. Together they're bringing in over $125,000 a year, which at the time in the 1980s- That's a that, lot of money. I mean, that put them in the top 5% yeah, of Americans. A, yeah, that's a lot of money. So they're, they're making some bucks. Right. Um, Richard, of course, manages the finances in the family. And basically this enables him to spend a great deal of money on one of his favorite passions, collect, gambling, collecting guns. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, gambling would have. That's, that's a good guess. Or, or you know, I was thinking drinking. You know, yeah. Back then, I mean, shit. You want to get loaded and fly a plane? They were cool with that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Have a good. Here, here's a scotch. Sipping on a scotch and smoking a cigar as you're flying the plane. Jeez, oh Pete. So apparently, he's he builds this arsenal of weapons. I mean, he's got revolvers and and magnums and automatic, semi-automatic crossbows, hand grenades, thousands of rounds of ammunition. I mean, he's got Dang. enough for an army going on in his house. And and nobody said, hey, uh, team timeout. What the fuck do you need all that for? Right. Like in the 80s, you know, I mean, that, you know, nowadays, you know, people have that stuff. But in the 80s, you just didn't have all that kind of shit. Yeah. Well, it gets worse. His spending gets worse because oh, basically shit. he makes hell pay for all the household expenses, you know, mortgage, electric, water. All right. He makes her yeah. deal with all that. Everything he makes, he blows on whatever the fuck he wants to blow it on. So, like, for some reason, he buys a variety of landscaping equipment. Like, he buys tractors, mowers. He buys a $25,000 backhoe, which he ends up never using. And like all this shit just piles up in their front yard and there's just this like mishmash of like rusty broken machines that like everyone in the neighborhood thinks is an eyesore. Like they're like the fucking rednecks of the neighborhood. Oh my God, $25,000 on a tractor? On a backhoe. What the fuck? And apparently he never used Do it. Do you have a farm, sir? <laughs> I think they just delivered it and then it just fucking sat there. Like he never even used it that for anything. That is the weirdest shit. Well, I think he's- Can I get people. that? Hey, listen, I got a lot of shit I could use it for. Right. So uh, in 1982, um, even though he's still a full-time pilot with Eastern Airlines, uh, he decides to become a auxiliary or reserve police officer here in their home in their town of Newtown. And he needs more money. He's clearly well. They're not paid. Reserves aren't paid. So, um, and and here's the thing: is it's like he's blowing all this money, and then he takes on you know this reserve non-paid job that takes up even more of his time, um, and then he starts buying shit for his job. So um, he ends up buying like. Uh, a brand new uh, Ford Crown Victoria, like you know, like mo what most police cars were back then, and he he pays to have like lights and police radios and all this crap put in. Pays for all this shit himself just because he's that into being a police officer. Sir, you're a pilot. What are you doing? Right, exactly. Like, shouldn't you go buy like a two seater plane? Isn't that something you would you would utilize more? Yes. So during all this time, from the time they're married up until her disappearance in 1986, uh, Richard continues to see other women he this guy's a hound dog oh so he's an, he's another form of douchebag well he's you know if you look into this there's a lot of stories about pilots flight attendants yeah you know, pilots that they're yeah. flying you know yeah. not that all pilots are like this i'm not trying to say that i'm just saying there's a lot of stories about some pilots having a woman in every city that they go to and or even the stewardesses i've heard it as well you yeah. know they, there's kind of stuff going on there too yeah um, i mean that's a long i mean that's a lot away from home so i guess you find yeah. it where you can i guess yeah uh, so apparently Hell was aware of a lot of this and tolerated it uh, for a while. But we get to the point now in 86, their marriage is in trouble. Um, she's openly speaking about divorce with several of her friends. Finally. Yes. Uh, in, in the summer of 86, so just a few months before her disappearance, she retains a divorce attorney. 
and then later hires Fantastic. this private detective named Keith Mayo, who is a former Connecticut cop. And basically, this is to gather evidence of infidelity right, against right. Richard. Good. So when they go to divorce, Good. she can make him look like the jackass that he fucking is. Good. So now we get into the investigation. We're going back into the investigation. Now. Okay. So uh, when detectives interviewed Don Marie Thomas, now remember she's the Crafts all pair. She's like that housekeeper slash nanny. Okay. She tells investigators um, a couple of important details. So on the morning of November 19th, Crafts suddenly awakened her at 6 a.m., which was out of the ordinary. And he said that Hell had already left the house and she was driving to his sister's house in Westport okay. because the power was out. Okay. So uh, she thought that this was really strange since Newtown had been hit with a severe winter storm during the night and visibility was very poor. So yeah, the power's out, but it's still kind of weird to like tell it's your wife. It's too late to go like, at this hey, point. Hey, go fucking drive by yourself right. in a snowstorm, you know, while yeah. you're trying to You should have left shit. yesterday. Why would she leave today? Right. Right. Um, so because of the power failure, basically Richard is insisting on taking the children also to his sister's house right away. So uh, he wakes up his three children at 6.30, loads everybody into the family car, Don, Thomas included. And they're cussing him. They're like, hey, it's a fucking snow day here. What are you doing? We yeah, want to exactly. sleep in. We were at school fuck? yesterday, you uh, asshole. Don't even get me started with that because our kids have been off. And I think we're woken up by them every morning about 6.30, yeah, 7 they're o'clock. on my damn nerves. Sleep in, assholes. I know, it's like, come on, guys. Ugh. Okay, so they're all packed up in the family wagon. And uh, they drive up to the sister's house. Richard drops off the kids and Dawn to the sister's house and leaves immediately. Like he doesn't go in, say, hey, you know, hang out for a minute with his sister. He drops them and he bolts. He's out of there. Um, and then Dawn, you know, um, Dawn, the, the, I keep wanting to say babysitter, the nanny, she's like, so it's weird he leaves right away. And also, hell's not there. She supposedly had left already right. to head that way. But yeah. when they get there, She's not at the sister's house, even though she supposedly left an hour before. And now what the fuck is this nanny supposed to do? She's supposed to be there to watch the kids. Now nobody's at the house. Yes. She got to be there with Richie by herself now. <laughs> well, she so Richard leaves right away, and then Dawn tells investigators that Richard doesn't come back to pick them up until later that day around 7 p.m., so like 12 hours later. Um, and by that point, Hell still wasn't still hadn't shown up. She still doesn't know where the hell Hell is at. <laughs> didn't plan that it just came out that way yeah, it happens yeah so later that night dawn who's kind of freaking out now says to richard you know where is hell what's what's going on don you better shut up and, and you're next richard says quote i don't know and the next day when she asked richard the same question again he told her that hell was in denmark with her sick mother so the night before, all of a sudden, he doesn't know now. Oh, we, she went to Denmark. Don, get the fuck out of that house as fast as possible because your ass is next. Well, and this this is my exodus cue. She also tells investigators that it's at that time that she notices for the first time that there are pieces of carpet that are cut out and missing around the house. So like squares of carpet um, are missing, especially from the master bedroom. <sighs> if that's not your sign right there. Jesus Christ. So... So Richard tells so it, her, is he playing hopscotch? <laughs> he's just he's just fucking cutting pieces of carpet out. Well, Richard tells her that he had spilled kerosene on the rug, and that those sections needed to be. Replaced. How come it doesn't smell like kerosene, Richie? How is it because you cut the carpet? You fucking idiot! Yeah. So at this point, Newtown police are like, okay, there's some shit that happened. Like we're, our our interest is sparked now. Yeah, Richie spilling kerosene all over our house. There is a big problem. 
So they asked Richard Crafts to submit to a lie detector test. Oh, well, he fucking did it, didn't he? Yeah, he agrees. Any he- do n- listen, listen. I don't. I have not. I've not committed crimes. I, I've never done. I've never murdered anybody. I just like reading about it and talking about it. Do not take a lie detector test. They are not admissible. True. They can be wrong. Yes, very true. You you could very well have not done it, but your body's going to say, yep, I'm guilty. Do not, for any reason, take a lie detector test, please. Well, this goes in Richard Kraft's favor because he agrees on December 4th to take a lie detector test and he ends up passing it. You have got yes, so to be shitting he passes me. passes a lie detector. So even though, like you were saying, these aren't admissible in court, um, they are. They can be a useful tool for investigators to, you know, as part of their investigation. Right, but they can't use it for anything. So what's the point in doing it? Well, I think it's just getting a read on somebody. And, you know, obviously, you know. Which I feel like most of them already have anyway. Right. But this kind of works in reverse because since he passes the test, uh, a lot of the investigators are like, well, there you go. You know, he doesn't know where she's It at. was kerosene, Dawn. Right. right. However, uh, some detectives, their interest has peaked a little bit. Yeah, because they, they're like, uh-uh, something's well, not right. And it's it's that couple of them that are like, there's something weird about mm-hmm. this, this fucking airline pilot that makes, you know, 125 grand a year wanting to be this reserve cop. Like, there's some... This guy's weird. He's creeping Who's us out. Obviously carrying kerosene shit splashing it everywhere all in the house now it's our house is a fucking bomb waiting to go off so these detectives call crafts back for another interview with okay. them because they they got some questions so on december you go, 11th you guys go <laughs> so uh on december 11th they locate crafts and this time he's on duty at the southbury police department where he is working the night shift so how many fucking jobs does this guy have it's weird it's very weird go home and take the shit out of your front yard bro so uh they basically called southbury police you know the supervisor and said send him on over we got to ask him a few questions so he shows up in full uniform 9 20 p.m on december 11th uh lieutenant michael de joseph and detective robert vardzik uh had already prepared some questions and they conducted the interview so according to police reports this is how the interview progressed. Question, Richard, did you know that your wife hired a private investigator? Richard says, no. Question, did you know that the PI has documented your relationship with a New Jersey woman? Oop, And Richie. Richie says, no. They ask, why would your wife tell her friends that she was afraid for herself regarding serving you divorce paper? and tell them to check on her if something happened to her. Ooh, Richie. Her, his response is, I cannot imagine her saying this. This is completely out of character for her to say this. Right, right, okay. So then they ask him, on November 18th, when Hell came home, when and why did she end up leaving the house again? So he answers that question, I think kind of in a smart ass way. He says, quote, those answers are already in my statement. Mm, okay, Richie. Which that's kind of, I would think is a, detective would be like well okay you're 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 a cop but you're not getting paid so calm the fuck down Richie right so then they ask him what is the story with your bedroom rug Uh, (laughs) we were told that you removed it or cut some pieces out of it can you explain this to us oh god I can't wait for this and he said well all the rugs in the house are being removed or replaced and they said what was spilled on the rug in your bedroom that you know prompted you to remove it and he says kerosene you fucking idiot 
So then they said, you know, ketchup would have been better, like red Kool Aid. Hey, listen, yeah. I got up in the middle of the night, went and got that black cherry Kool Aid, and clearly had a hole in the bottom of the glass and just dripped it all over. Like, why the fuck are you carrying kerosene through your master bedroom? Cr- I don't- and and who in their right fucking mind? cuts out square pieces of this is not a fucking checkerboard dude this is our house so they get a little bit more specific with them now and they said so did you personally did you cut the pieces out of the rug and he says yes two feet at a time it's easier to remove it that way two feet oh my god i'm thinking that these are like eight by eights here you know eight inch two like strips like two foot strips i guess you have got to oh my god so then they ask him, well, what did you do with the rug that you took out of the bedroom? And he says, dumped bedroom rug in Newtown landfill one week ago. It was blue in color. Yeah, we know. The rest of the carpet is still there, you <laughs> asshole. <laughs> so then they say, why have you been telling everyone different things about hell being missing? missing? Um, like her mother being sick or right. not knowing where she is, you know, all Went the back to Spain. and forth travel to cruise all the way to Japan. So he says, I didn't want to say my wife was gone and I didn't know where she was. So I didn't really know what to tell people I was embarrassed. Actually, that would have made everybody, I mean, right? that would have made a whole hell of a lot more sense than, oh, she went to Spain. Oh, she's in Denmark. Oh, she went to visit my sister even though she's not there. And like, yeah, nobody believed any of that. Pick a story, stick to it. Jeez, fucking criminals. So then they say, has Hell received any mail there at the house since she's been missing? Hmm. And he says, no, she's gotten no letters since she left. She usually gets about two letters a week. Hmm. So this is kind of odd. And it'll come into play later. Okay. Um, But basically, whatever the police asked him, he had an answer for. Um, And apparently his demeanor seemed very... Except which country or state his wife is residing in at this time. (laughs) Right. Um, So he seemed cooperative, but a little bit guarded. Um, And basically still, they haven't caught him really in any like outright lies or anything. Um, So they're more like half-truths that he's telling. Mm -hmm. They can Mm -hmm. tell he's guarding something, but Mm -hmm. he's not acting super weird. Just a little bit. Um, you know what I've noticed though, watching you know crime shows and watching that? like First Forty Eight. You know, if if you walked into my house today and said, "Hey, um, listen, the neighbor told us that they saw you carrying a body out of here," I would be like, "You can go fuck yourself." Right. Are you fucking kidding me? Right. Like I would, I mean, you would just be appalled. You would be pissed off. But when somebody is blatantly like. Ah, well, we don't believe the story you told, so I think you're full of shit. And he's just like, he wants to be kind of like cool and and like kind of a dick about kind it. Of condescending. But like c- completely calm. Ding, ding, ding. Right. We're on your number, you fucking asshole. Yeah. So so basically, they you know they he writes a statement for him again this night, and they gotta let him go. I mean, they don't you know they don't have anything on him, but these detectives are becoming more and more convinced that whatever happened to Hellcrafts. In some way, Richard's got something to do with it. They don't know how Finally. yet, but they know he's got something to do with it. So let's talk about Keith Mayo again. Now remember, he's the PI yes. who Hell hired. Yes. Um, he's getting frustrated because he feels like the police department's moving way like too fucking too, yeah. slow with this. Right. Because um, he knows he knows Richard did it. Yeah. He he already you know he. Right, because he's talked to her. She probably told him the whole story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he, he's trying to get the police department, although they are kind of moving. Finally, we got some detectives convinced, and they're working on it. But right. This is too slow for him. So he goes, he starts snatching up all of Hell's friends and other attorneys and people he knows, 
and he's wanting their opinion right. on the case. Um, so he like is going to these attorneys, presenting all the evidence he has and all this shit. And basically all of them are saying, yeah, he's fucking involved. Like, yeah. Right. It's he's Richard. an asshole. Right. Um, so he rounds up a bunch of people and um, he heads out to the local dump. And this Keith Mayo dude's like, we're finding this fucking carpet. Good. Because if he was honest and he threw it in the dump, we're, we're going to find it. Hey, guys, just follow this kerosene scent. So he picks up the, you know, the local trash pickup people are there. They're helping him out and Ugh, everything. This is, that's a, a week. That's a, that's a lot of trash. Good for him. Yeah. Way so, to go, Keith. So he's in the Canterbury dump, which is like two hours east of Newtown. It's like the entire western half of Connecticut. It's where all their shit oh, ends wow. up. So they are searching for the shit for days. Um, but guess what they come across? Does he find it? They come across a piece of blue carpet. Stop it. Yes. Go, um, Keith for the win. Keith for the win. They find it, and guess what it has on it? It's a stain. Oh, is it kerosene? Uh, well, it appears to be human blood. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. Jeez, can you so, imagine? So you're going to like this part. Uh, so the piece of rug is taken to the state police laboratory. Um, and at this time, the Connecticut State Police Laboratory is run by one of the country's foremost forensic scientists, Dr. Henry Lee. Ooh. Which I know, if anybody's a true crime fan, Dr. Lee, man, he is like the forensic yeah. dude. He's got his own show. He's on a bunch of shows being yep. interviewed. You see Dr. Lee yep. everywhere. Uh, so he's running this state police crime lab at the time. So that's where the carpet ends up going. And this is how Henry Lee gets involved in all this. So at this point, the press catches on to kind of what's going on. And on December 17th, for the first time, the Danbury News Times publishes a story with the headline, Police Seek Missing Newtown Woman. And Richie's a dick. <laughs> right. Uh. Um, and the Newtown Police Chief, Louis Marchese, is quoted in this article as saying, at this point, we consider this to be a missing person case. Okay. Keith Mayo, the private investigator, he's like, bullshit. He tells the same reporter, I don't think she disappeared on her own accord. So there's this battle. Now you got the police chief pissed off at the PI and this whole bullshit like, oh, you're just a private investigator. You know, this bullshit going back and forth. Well, the state's attorney's office steps in and says, I want jurisdiction of this handed over to the state police because your little podunk town. town police department that isn't used to having this shit going on, you're fucking it up, right. basically, is what right. the state attorney's going. To add another setback to this, Dr. Lee has his findings on the carpet. Okay. So he says, quote, after four hours of backbreaking work carried out on this carpet, none of the stains tested positive for blood. He couldn't say that it wasn't blood, but he could not get them to test positive for blood. So maybe Richie was half telling the truth. Maybe he... Maybe it was blood, and then he read somewhere that you can dump kerosene on it, and then maybe it won't, it will ruin what DNA evidence is there. That's my guess. Yeah, well, this this ends up pissing off all of Hell's friends and Keith Mayo, understandably. Um, so basically, they start this campaign where they just nonstop call the Newtown Police Department. Day in and day out, they want updates. What are you doing? They're driving these people fucking nuts. And basically, as a result, that state attorney does step in and say, they, look, this investigation as a whole, now the state police. You guys, Newtown, your hands are out of yeah, it. Yeah, fuck Oops, you. State police are on it now. 
So, in comes detectives from the Western District Major Crimes Unit Ooh. of the State Police. That's a that's a, a hefty title I know, there. That's like that's very cool. prestigious. Uh, yes, the Western District Major Crimes Unit sounds like a bom, bom. should be a TV right, show, right? Yeah. So they step in. They they immediately start diving into stuff like crafts. Um, activities with his credit cards his checkered board carpet (laughs) right right um so they pull his credit card purchases and his phone records for the month prior to november 19th they find some interesting things uh on one of his mastercard credit bills um they find uh some weird purchases on november 13th richard buys a large capacity westinghouse freezer at an appliance store in danbury uh, here we go. He paid 375 bucks for it. He picked it up at the store on no- November 17th. So that's just two days before she disappears. During the same billing period, detectives also noticed that he rented some type of machinery at Darien Rentals. And they know that that rental was $900. Ooh. So, begs the question, why did Crafts need this huge freezer? What time of type of machinery costs nine hundred bucks to rent? I imagine we're about to find out. We're about to find out right after this. All right, everybody, welcome back. We were just—I'm sorry—I pulled a Nick Cannon. Yeah, like, you totally right did. There. It was rude, <laughs> but you know, I get it's it. Like, and the mass singer is. We'll find out after this. Damn you! All right, so we are now. Uh, it's Christmas Day, 1986. These fucking kids—they fucking don't know where their mom's at. <laughs> It's fucking Santa just came, and their dad's a lunatic. So police have put together at this point a search warrant for the Crafts residence at 5 Newfield Lane. Okay. Uh, Tell me they didn't do this on Christmas Day. Well, we'll explain why here in a second. In the 11-page affidavit, detectives Cortiro and Byrne listed dozens of supporting facts to strengthen their belief of why a search should be conducted of the Crafts home. Prominent among these was Richard Kraft's ever-changing statements to Hell's friends concerning her disappearance and his actions on the night of November 19th. So, as we all know, the main requirement to get a search warrant, basically, you got to show a judge you got probable cause. Right. Uh, that, you know, evidence can be found at a specified location. So this is really hard to do, especially without a body or any hard evidence at right. this point. Right, right. But it was the final sentence of the affidavit that dispelled any doubts of what police were thinking in this affidavit. Detective Cotero wrote, quote, that based upon the foregoing facts and information, the affiants have probable cause to believe and do believe that evidence of murder will be found within or upon the premise of 5 Newfield Lane. I just think it's kind of sad, you know? I mean, I get it. You know, they got to do what they got to do, but there's fucking kids there, man. It's Christmas Day. Well, police discovered that Richard Crafts had taken his children to Florida for the holidays. What a dick. So they decided that this was an opportune At, time. Because he's not, yeah, absolutely. Nobody's there. Yeah, right, he can't, yeah. Okay, that makes yes. sense. Uh, so Dr. Henry Lee also agreed to be present during the search to oversee the collection of evidence. So what? Dr. Lee himself is there. Oh my gosh, so that's, big, that's big time yes. there. On the afternoon of Christmas Day, a team of state police investigators and Dr. Henry Lee um, and a bunch of crime scene technicians, they enter the premises through a back window. What they found was an empty home in complete disarray. Furniture strewn about, dirty clothes lay, lay everywhere. There's dishes and utensils in the sink that are unwashed. There's mattresses on the bare floor in the living room, along with boxes of toys and other items. You like dirty motherfucker. Basically, this dude, I mean, he's living like a bachelor with these kids, you know, basically like a dude that doesn't know what the fuck he's doing with kids. Right. And basically, it's just... Because he bought farm equipment. Meanwhile, she's actually being a parent. Yes. 
the carpets are already completely pulled up and discarded in the entire home. Can't you can't get can't stop what's underneath those. A freezer is located and searched. There's no body inside. Uh, what detectives didn't know at the time, though, that this was not the freezer he had purchased. This is one that they had had there for a, for a long time. It's okay. their old freezer. The new one, which was purchased on November 17th, had already been removed and discarded by Richard. So during the search, there's dozens of weapons. They tag all of those. You know, they're thinking any one of these guns could have something to do with this. So they take everything. Um, and for the next few days, the search team goes over every inch of the home Eventually, they seized 108 pieces of evidence, according to a search warrant inventory. Wow. Dr. Lee performs the good old luminol test. Oops, um, and that, yes. that house lit up. He does this in various locations throughout the house, which tested positive for the presence of blood. Uh, some of the seized towels, so like, you know, they, they're taking anything you'd use to clean up too. So right. they took a bunch of towels. Those also later tested positive for blood. Um, and furthermore, the blood was type O positive, which is the same as which is the, the deer that they have around the neighborhood. Right. Okay. Um, so really, they still had no clue where the fuck hell crafts is. She, you know, she's not there. Now they've got some blood evidence that they know something happened, but where the fuck is she at? So things start to move really quickly now. Investigators learned that that nine hundred dollar charge on Crafts Mastercard at Darien Reynolds. That was a payment for the rental of a wood chipper. Dang, and that's nine hundred bucks and what eighty six? Yes, it's very expensive. Apparently, this was like a full size fucking commercial grade, like what you see tree crews using wood chipper. Pete. Uh, So he had rented and picked up what they call a brush bandit wood chipper on November nineteenth, the same day she disappears, and apparently used it to chip a quantity of wood. So. Now everybody's kind of thinking the unthinkable. Yeah, right? and I, I, we better be going and getting that motherfucking wood chipper. Yeah. So on the afternoon of December 30th, 1986, detectives Patrick McCafferty and T.K. Brown, which, what are they members of? The Western District Major Crime Squad. Dun-dun. So they locate Joseph Hine, who we talked about in the beginning. He's that utility man from Southbury. Yeah. Uh, he's the one that was plowing snow. So they listen to his story about observing this wood chipper in a U-Haul and all this shit. And they say, hey, can you show us where that was at? And this guy's like, well, fuck oh, yeah, hop in. Shit. So he drives him right to where he saw, you know, this thing parked, um, which is along the area of the river there known as Lake Zor. So <laughs> sounds, sounds like a superhero. Lake kinda, Zor. kind of does, yeah. So uh, he takes him to the area. He says this right here is where it was parked. So they get out, start looking around, and they see piles of wood chips along the banks of the river. There seemed to be small pieces of green plastic substance kind of strewn about the area, too. Uh, So Detective Brown gets down on his hands and knees. He starts sifting through some of this material. Um, Shit. And he starts to notice that there's also some scraps of shredded paper that are kind of strewn about in the wood chips as well. So what What he ends up... What did this fucking crazy asshole do? Well, he ends up finding um, that this paper is actually pieces of mail. They're shredded up pieces of mail. So not only did he... Okay, go ahead. So on one piece, they find kind of a big chunk of one. They can see that it's an envelope with the little plastic cellophane window on it. Mm -hmm. And through the plastic, they read, Miss Hell L. Crafts, 5 Newfield Lane, Newtown, Connecticut. It's a piece of her mail Mm -hmm. in with these wood chips. So It has no business being 
where it's at. Exactly. There's only one way it gets there. So within an hour, I mean, they call in the cavalry. So within an hour, you know, they've got a search team. They got state police there. You got Dr. Henry Lee's out there again now. Everybody, you know, this is something uh, out out here. They set up a perimeter. They start searching through all these little tiny pieces. Every inch of ground was gone over at least twice. You know, you got teams photographing everything. Um, they find several additional envelopes with Hell's name on it. Uh, they found numerous strands of blonde hair. They find bone fragments, fabrics, cloth, plastic items, wood chips, and also some other unidentified material. Um, Dr. Henry Lee is quoted as saying that he knew from his past experience that he would have to prove beyond any reasonable doubt that these remains were those of Hellcrafts and that she was murdered. Right. He was going to have to prove this. Right. Um, I mean, they pretty much figured at this point they knew what yeah. happened, but you got to prove it in a quarter. This guy's going to fucking walk, right? Right. Because um, then you don't have a homicide unless you prove no, that. You just have an asshole. So detectives uh, go to the rental agency, the Darien Rentals, where Crafts rents the wood shepherd. Uh, they get copies of the agreement, you know, that prove that right. he had rented this. And by chance, that exact machine that he had rented is sitting there on their back lot. So they tow Lucky. it in. Lucky. Right? They tow it into the state police forensic lab, and it's also examined for evidence. Um, so in the meantime, they search this Lake Zor area for days. I mean, they're out there collecting shit for days. They put a diving team in the water, um, and of course the the water's fucking freezing. So like yeah. they're going in in shifts. It's taking a really long time, but they want to find as much as possible. Right. They, they go as far as obtaining permission to lower the water level because there's a dam upriver. So they get permission to like shut the dam down, which is going to lower the Ooh. water level. And when they do this, they locate a chainsaw that oh had been thrown God. out into the river. So um, they pull this chainsaw up. They clean the mud off of it. The serial number has been filed off of it. Oh, I didn't even know those things had serial numbers. Uh, yeah, I didn't. I didn't either before I read this. What is this? Is this guy like a gangster? What is going I don't know. on? He d he tried very hard to cover his tracks. Like filing off. It's a fucking chainsaw, bro. It's not a gun. Right. Well, um, so, you know, they pulled this up. And they could say about the chainsaw, too, even though the, it was, you know, the serial number was filed. They could tell it had only been in the water a very short time. Right. You know, it, it was at the bottom. So it wasn't years and it wasn't rusted or. Yeah. yeah, they could tell this was like a newer chainsaw that had right. just been thrown in there. And then it happens. A detective discovers a piece of a human toe. Um, shortly afterwards, a fragment of a finger is found. You fucked up, Richie. And part of a tooth. Um, so in the end, Dr. Lee is quoted as saying, our team's efforts at Lake Zor eventually led to the discovery of 2,660 strands of blonde hair, 69 slivers of human bone, five droplets of human blood, two teeth, um, a piece of human skull, three ounces of human tissue, a portion of a human finger, one fingernail, and one portion of a toenail. Jesus Christ. So at this point, Hellcrafts has been found. We're assuming. I mean, it's got to be, right? Listen, I don't care if this woman was dead or alive. That is a fucked up way to go. That That is just be... I. I, oh my God, this poor lady, these poor kids. So on January 11th, an arrest warrant is issued in Newtown Court for Richard Crafts. At about 9 p.m. that night, a bunch of Connecticut state troopers and detectives surround the house. He's back in town now from Florida. They surround the house 
and they call on him to surrender and no one answers the door so they call him on the phone and he answers and he they say dick speaking yeah dickhead here they say hey man got a warrant from you for you you need to come outside and he says quote i'm tired i'll take care of it in the morning oh okay so, so and it, at what point in in time in any period of time has that been hey guys pack up right dick's tired we'll come back in the morning okay man yeah cool we'll come like 6 30 or is that too early we'll well push it to seven because i you know i'm a i'm a i'm a sleeper okay we'll give you an how about eight that'll give you plenty perfect of time to take yeah a shower. i can get up yeah it'll be good yeah so but i guess when they insist obviously they're gonna insist get your ass out here he he gets angry with them and he shouts don't fucking call me back and he hangs up on him oh, that's gonna work so after a series of phone calls back and forth you know they're basically trying to talk him out of here uh, at 12:30 a.m., he ends up walking outside. He, Richie, we don't want to. We don't want to. Sh- we don't want the carpet to catch on fire. There's kerosene everywhere. So they say that he looks uh, pretty disheveled and tired and stressed out when he walks out of his house. Uh, but he's immediately taken into custody. He's taken to the Bridgeport Jail. His bail is set at seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So this is what police work out. This is what they believe happened. This is like the timeline here. So, since drops of blood were found in the bedroom, they mm-hmm. assume that this is where she was most likely bludgeoned um, with something in the head at the foot of the bed. You know, they, he, you know, she's walking through, he hits her, knocks her out, mm-hmm. or perhaps even kills her. So, they speculate then that Richard carries her down to the basement where he'd recently hooked up this brand new freezer. He places her inside the freezer. Okay, stop. And at this point is when he goes back upstairs and he wakes up the nanny and the kids and says, hey, we're all going to sister's house. That's where hell's going. But Shut up. At this point, she's in the freezer downstairs. So um, basically, they make that trip you know, to sister's. He immediately returns. And by this time, when he gets back, hell's frozen. She's, she's been in the freezer long enough in the basement. She's frozen. Oh, my God. So... He gets the U-Haul and the wood chipper, and he places Hell's frozen body in the back of this U-Haul. All right, Lumberjack, let's see it. And it's believed that he drove to a property that he owns in Newtown, this kind of secluded property. Let me guess, more farm equipment? <laughs> well, yeah, probably, right? Like farm equipment, storage area, a bunch of shit he's never going to use. an idiot. Um, so it's at this point that they believe while he's in the secluded piece of property that he uses the chainsaw to cut up hell into smaller, more manageable pieces. What kind of sick fuck? You know, to shoot somebody is one thing, but now we're talking about, like, just mutilating a corpse and and cutting the... And this is the mother of your children. Right. And all just because she's going to file for divorce, like you said. Because you're a fucking douchebag. Yeah. This is crazy. So he freezes her. He cuts her up with a chainsaw. They believe he put her the pieces of her back into the freezer in the U-Haul. This is when he drives to Lake Zor, and he runs those pieces through the wood So chipper. he brought the damn freezer with him? Yes. Oh, my God. So um, so they're thinking, though, that like uh, these little pieces of green plastic that they found at the, at the crime scene at Lake Zor... The, these were plastic bag. bags. Yeah. Yes, he had cut pieces up, put them into separate trash bags yeah. to help transport. Okay. And then he ran everything through the wood chipper with it aimed out into the water, hoping that everything would shoot out would into just, the water and just, just kind of yeah, disappear. 
you know, not thinking a lot of shit's going to fall just right there on the ground as you're, you know, running a wood chipper. First mistake, Dick. Yeah. So, um, and they think that when uh, Hines saw him, the snowplow driver, um, that he had already finished doing all this and he basically was like cleaning the truck up because they think he then took it and ran fresh wood through the wood chipper to like in an effort to like clean it out. Like, so Mm -hmm. the blades wouldn't have shit, you know? So they're thinking he ran like a whole fucking tree through there trying to clear out any blood or bone fragment and stuff. This was really planned out. So the trial begins. So due to the overwhelming amount of like publicity on the case at this point, because this is a crazy fucking story. So of course everybody's reporting it. Um, They, they move his trial from Newtown there to new London, Connecticut. Um, You know, you got papers running headlines chopped to pieces, you know, in big bold print, you know, all this crazy shit going on. So the prosecution's led by state attorney Walter Flanagan. He puts a virtual army of experts, um, of forensic witnesses on the stand. Dr. Henry Lee's like the star witness for the Mm -hmm. prosecution. He testifies all about the collection of the evidence at Lake Zor and at the home and all that. Um, Dr. Lee's able to determine that 65 pieces of bone were, quote, cut with a heavy type cutting edge that produced a crushing and cutting force. In other words, the, the fucking wood chipper. Uh, he said that the bone, the human tissue fibers and hair were all mixed together with wood chips and vegetative debris. But most oh. importantly, the same machine cut it all. He was able to definitively say by all the that. way that it was cut and like the way the blades were and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. On the bone and yeah. And one of the most damaging pieces of evidence offered at trial was the chainsaw recovered at the bottom of the river uh, because even though the serial number had been filed off, technicians were able to find remnants of human tissue, blonde hair, and a number of blue fibers in the teeth of the chainsaw blade. Uh, those blue fibers matched the rug inside the craft's home that he had ripped out and gotten rid of. Because all the kerosene? Yes. And the forensic lab was even able to restore the serial number. So they, and then they trace. Ah, dick. Yeah, what a duck. You got to scratch that shit off better than that, man. So they're, they're able to track this back to a chainsaw that Richard purchased all the way back in 1981, paying 645 bucks for it. So this is a chainsaw he had. The only piece the of machinery he ever actually used. Right, exactly. But the thing that puts Richard away here is the forensic odontology. So the teeth, rudiments. Uh, basically, you got a couple of experts, Dr. Constantine Karazoulos, who's a forensic odontologist. Um, he testifies basically both that the teeth were removed from the mouth with traumatic force, like that of being put through a wood chipper, and he's also able to identify the teeth as being those of Hellcrafts. So um, there's there's a part in the trial here where a second forensic odontologist is called in, and they you know they produce X-rays of Hell back from when she was having dentist stuff done, and they basically they're proving they that this to, yeah. shit, all these pieces are part of Hell basically. Right. Uh, so the case goes to jury on June 23rd. This this is the crazy part to me. So for two weeks, nine men and three women try to reach a verdict. Two weeks? Apparently, they had one fucking jackass guy that just could not bring himself to find Richard guilty. We don't know what the hang-up is. We've got other jury members quoted as saying that it was like reasoning with a child when talking to this guy Mm. and that he had a real difficulty retaining information. So, like, they're basically stuck in this room for two weeks, and all of them, like, day one are like, duh, fucking right. fry this dude and right. apparently there's this guy in there that's like well I don't know 
what if it wasn't you know i don't you know and then they're like well remember the teeth are oh that's right they did say that you know just like that there's that dumbass in every group so winner winner chicken dinner guess what happens mistrial yeah figured we've got a mistrial richard crafts has a chance at freedom here so uh flash forward a little bit on september 7th 1989 the second trial begins and this is like a replay of the first one like the same state's witnesses testify dr lee gets his ass up there again they all testify to the same shit all over again but this time when it goes to the jury on november 20th it takes only eight hours Okay. And it is a unanimous verdict. Crafts is found guilty of murder. Um, and apparently as they're reading the verdict, he shows no emotion, um, just staring straight ahead. And uh, what's interesting is this is almost, uh, when this verdict is read, it's like three years to the day of when hell went missing. So a little poetic justice ha. there. So um, he is sentenced to receive uh, 99 years is what he gets for the murder in state prison. And afterwards, state attorney Flanagan told the press, quote, 23 of 24 people were convinced that he was guilty beyond question. That's a pretty good standard of proof, isn't it? Yeah. End quote. Absolutely. Now, here's the crazy shit. You ready for this? Oh, I don't know. 99 years, right? Here's an article from the Hartford Current by a Christine Dempsey, which was just published January 31st of 2020. So this is just two months ago. Don't even start. Notorious murderer Richard Crafts, who used a chainsaw to cut up his wife's body and a wood chipper to dispose of it, is out of prison and living in a halfway house. A State Department of Correction spokeswoman said Friday. The 82-year-old is in a transitional housing program for veterans in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So basically, um, what they say in this article, he served a dramatically shorter sentence because at the time... They have this statutory good time law. So basically, you know, that says for every day that you're good, you're a good little boy when you're in prison, you get some time off your sentence. So this motherfucker just got released two months ago. Not that even two like months a good ago. Idea. So he's he's out there in the wind. Uh, he's not living in Newtown again. I, no, I, I, I yeah. I th- he's probably pretty recognizable in the entire state of Connecticut. I would say. I, yeah, I mean he 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 went to he moved to West Virginia. Yeah, right. Probably Cincinnati. Florida. Yeah, he's He's long gone. Uh, So popular culture. I just wanted to throw this out here again because I think I already mentioned once that um, this story basically inspired um, Fargo, which I just learned Ange has not seen. No, I don't. I've never even heard of it. I'm making you watch that because I think it's an excellent. If you have not checked out the movie Fargo, great movie. Kind of follows this a little bit. Not, you know, entirely crazy close, but you can see where they picked up the key points. Um also, this was the pilot episode for Forensic Files in 1996. Mm. So if you can find that episode, like episode one of Forensic Files, this is what they covered. Um, and there's also been numerous other shows, like New Detectives covered it, um, Crime Stories on History Channel, they, they covered it. So check all those out. But yeah, I can't believe, I didn't know this guy was out until we were researching it. And then I was like, holy shit, here's an article from like last month. I feel like they... You know, because there's so much overcrowding, they feel like, oh, he's 82 at this point. Like, you know, he really can't harm anybody. But apparently this guy is pretty good with guns. And so, I don't know. I think, I just feel like if you, like, this isn't just a regular murder. This isn't like crime of passion. Right. You know, where you are like, hey, I was trying to kill this dude, but accidentally killed this guy. Like, this is a methodical, like, 
you froze your wife, cut her up with a chainsaw, and then put her through a fucking wood chipper. Like, yeah. that is insane to me. This is like as a, it's as heinous as I think a crime you can yes. commit. Really. Yes. Like, like you, you spent the time to do all that to, to someone that you claim to love as the mother of your child. Like, yeah, that, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't even, you know, killing somebody, but then dismembering them and, and like that is, that's a whole different ball game. That's a whole new level. Yeah. Hey, but we do a pretty good job of finding these sickos <laughs> and you know what? There are plenty more of them. That hey, we're, we're Dick, get if to. you're listening, go fuck yourself. Hey, let's hope Richard tunes in and listens to this. Yeah, yeah go, go fuck, fuck yourself. yourself. Good Lord. Well, guys, that about does it for this episode. We appreciate you, as always, tuning in. Um, if you want more info about us or you want to check out that Patreon stuff, please stop by our website, loveofmurder.com. See you next time. See you guys next time.